The, re the reason, he just won't read the rest, but it's not that impressive. It's <laughs> <laughs> As a matter of fact, I'm probably a lot more like the rest of you than any speaker you'll ever hear from. Uh, I haven't uh, written 20 books. I haven't created a billion-dollar uh, company. Um, I'm just, well, I, I spent 30 years in the business world running uh, small computer companies uh, up and down the East Coast and uh, training people how to build networks, that sort of thing. And then stepped out of that to run a seminary for seven years. And to say that I didn't know what I was doing was, it would be a great uh, uh, understatement. But they were so desperate, they asked me to step in. I told somebody the other day, when academics ask a businessman for help, you know they're really, really desperate. I, and if I've offended any academics here, I'm sorry. Uh, but what I want to do tonight is talk to you a little bit about this, um, the faith and work stuff that we do at the Institute for Faith, Work, and Economics. I've written a little book about two, almost three years ago now called um, How Then Should We Work? And that really talks about why our work is important to God. I'm writing a second book now along with our a PhD uh, economist that works for us. And the working title of that is called Stewardship Redeemed. And I'll tell more about that in a minute. I want to start off with a, um, a video that uh, my uh, organization put together. I told him, I said, I want you to write an About Us video, make an About Us video that's not about us. And this is what they came up with. It's got sound, so... With one part being sacred and another part secular. Worship is not reserved only for Sunday morning, but for Monday morning as well. Every time we get out of bed and ready ourselves for the day. Every time we labor at a task no matter how insignificant it may seem. Every moment is a gift. Every moment belongs to the one who gave us that moment. There is a way that leads a man to flourish. It is freedom. The freedom to discover his true potential. To keep the fruits of his labor. To find fulfillment in his work. These freedoms are the right of every person. Because they come woven into the God-given dignity of every person. Where they exist, societies and people flourish. Where they are absent, there is only poverty. These freedoms must be championed. For this is God's design for us, for the good of all he has created. This last Easter, I do what I normally do, and the week before Easter, I'll pick a passage in the Bible about the uh, about Holy Week, about something that's happened in Holy Week. And I'll study it that whole week in kind of preparation for Easter. Two years ago, I took Corinthians 15, 1 Corinthians 15. And last year, I took it again. It's 60-something verses long. It's one of the longest chapters in all of Paul's writings. It's a fascinating piece of Scripture because it starts off talking about the resurrection, about Jesus' resurrection. Apparently, there were people in the church at Corinth that were either denying the resurrection or there were people outside the church that were trying to influence the people in the church. So Paul lays out the fact that the resurrection is a historical fact, that it was seen by many, many people, by over 500 people. And he said, then Christ came to me later, and I saw him. And he said, look, this is a fact beyond dispute. Then the second half of the chapter, he switches and talks about our resurrection. 
The thing that will happen in the future, in the last day, when Jesus comes back again the second time to finish the work that he started the first time he was here, and he will raise up all the saints that he says that are asleep. And their spirits that have been heaven, have been waiting in heaven, will be united with these resurrection bodies. And then we will live in a physical world, different than this, because it won't be corrupted by sin. We'll live in resurrection bodies. I'm not really sure what those are. Forever, with Christ, here in a new heaven and a new earth. And you would think at the end of all that, as he walks through this incredible uh, stuff about the importance of our work, you think at the end of it, he would say, now, let's look forward to that great day when Jesus is going to come. I think that's how he'd end it, right? It's not how he ends it. In fact, when I first realized this, I was just blown away. Here's what Paul writes in the last verse of that chapter. He says, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. What he's telling them is because of Christ's resurrection, what we do in the here and now is not in vain. And unfortunately, a lot of times we read that and we think we're talking about church stuff, right? Paul says somewhere else in this, in this very book to the Corinthians, he says, everything you do, do to the glory of God. Not just the stuff you do in church, everything. I think he applies that same definition here. That everything you do in the richness of the resurrection of Christ is important, has great significance. Even what you're going to do at work tomorrow morning, regardless of what that work might be, whether you're working for a company, whether you're, you're, you're a stay-at-home mom, regardless of what that work, whether you're a student, whatever you do tomorrow has great intrinsic value to God. Oz Guinness, in a book he wrote a number of years ago called The Call, said something very profound. He said that our primary calling as Christians is to become disciples of Christ. This is a call to become, right? Uh, To be, to be something. But then he said something even more amazing. He said, out of that primary call flow four secondary calls. And these are calls to do. This is where the rubber meets the road. He said, basically, that Our call to be a disciple of Christ works itself out in these four major areas. Our call to the church, our call to family, our call to the community, and our call to vocation. Now, admittedly, most of us spend most of our time in that last one. And there may be some people in this room, certainly the pastors is the case, where their call to the church and their call to vocation overlap. Uh, Stay-at-home mother. Her call to vocation, if that's what she's been called to do at this season of her life, overlaps with her call to family. But for most of us, it breaks out in those four different areas. And those four different areas are going to change a little bit as we go through our lives. Certain parts of our lives, we're going to have more time, or going to have to spend more time with our families. Uh, certain times in our life, we're going to spend more time working in the community or working in our vacation. If you're starting a company, it takes a lot more work to get it up and going. I just became a grandfather. New season of life. Spend much more time with my family now, especially my grandkids, than I did with my uh, daughter and son-in-law. Um, because now there's an added attraction to be there, right? Some of you are smiling. You have grandchildren. You know how this works. So if we understand that our calling is to work itself out in these different areas. Now, here's the interesting thing. There's this, this larger faith and work movement. And we talk a lot about faith and work, but unfortunately, I think we've gotten a little bit sidetracked. And when we talk about it, even in my book, when you read my book, it's really concentrated on vocation. But we have to be careful not to get too far to that extreme. See, there's extreme over here. It says we're going to divide faith and work and never the twain shall meet. Right. So I go to church on Sunday. I go to work on Monday. They have nothing to do with it. That is absolutely not what the scripture teaches. But the other extreme is that work is so important. My vocation is so important. I'm going to build my company on the back of my family or, or, or I'm not going to do anything in the community or when the pastor comes ask me to help in the church. I say, no, pastor, my work is my calling. I can't spend any time in the church. That's not right either. And what Oz Guinness is saying and what I would like to stress today is that you have to see all three of those, excuse me, all four of those areas and how they fit together. Now, interestingly enough, the New Testament calls the com- combination of all these different types of work 
It calls it stewardship. Now, unfortunately, today, most people think stewardship means giving money to the church. A recent poll, 80% of evangelicals that were questioned when we're asked, what does stewardship mean? That's exactly what they said. That's not a biblical understanding of stewardship. And we need to get back to this biblical understanding of stewardship if we are going to be the salt and light in the world, in our communities, um, in our vocations that God has called us to be. Now, so if that's not stewardship, if giving money to the church is not stewardship, what is stewardship? And I would argue stewardship is not giving 10% of your money to the church. Stewardship, the way the Old, the Old and New Testament talk about it, is giving 100% of your time, talent, and treasure to our Lord Jesus Christ in the service of what he has called you to do in the here and now. It's not about some future time. It's not about something that's way off in the future. It's about what happens right now. Now, let me give you a, a kind of working definition of stewardship, okay? This is kind of a Webster's definition of stewardship. Stewardship's the faithful and effective management of property or resources belonging to another. Now, that is good as far as it goes, but I don't think it goes quite far enough. When I hear this, it sounds like, to me, house-sitting, right? Uh, most of you have house-sit for somebody, right? When, when you go to house-sit, what do you do? And first of all, you go house-sit for someone because their house is a lot nicer than your house or wherever you're living, right? And so you go in there and you take care of their house while they're gone. You try not to break anything. That's the, that's the number one thing. You would never go and house-sit for somebody and build a wing onto their house or build another master bedroom. You just wouldn't do that, right? So that's why I think this whole area of stewardship falls, uh, particularly for this session, falls short. But I think we can add one phrase to this definition and add a tremendous amount of meaning and import. Let me show you what that is. So let me reread this. The stewardship is the faithful and effective management of property or resources belonging to another in order to achieve the owner's original intent. So stewardship is about fulfilling what the original owner wanted to be done. Now, let me ask you this. When God built all this, what was his original intent? And we have to answer that question if we're going to get back to this bigger picture of stewardship, right? So I would argue that the owner's original intent, and you can see this in the Psalms, you can see this all through the New Testament, is that God made all this that he might be glorified. Like a great artist paints a beautiful picture, and that picture reflects the glory of what? Of the artist. So the creation, the Psalms tells us, reflects the glory of God. God's handiwork reflects his glory. So much so that the Apostle Paul says in Romans 1 that just people looking around at the creation, they can see enough to know with beyond a shadow of doubt that there's a creator. They're without excuse, Paul says, to deny God just by looking at the handiwork that he has made. So if his original intent was that he might be glorified, then the next step, what was his original intent for the creation? What state did he want it to be in so that would glorify him the most? And I think we find the answer to this if we go back to Genesis 1 and look at the story of God creating the earth. We see that every day, end of the fourth day, what does he say? He said it was good. The end of the fifth day, what does he say? He said it's good. The end of the sixth day, what does he say? Changes. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. Now, why is it very good on the end of the sixth day? Some people say it's because he created man. No, I don't think that's the answer. And we're not that good, right? I would submit to you, he looks at his creation. He's finished. He's done everything he planned to do. And he looks at it, and everything he's made works perfectly together just as he intended from the smallest subatomic particles to the greatest galaxies spinning in space. There's this interdependence in the creation. It all is woven together. Everything affects something else. See, we're taught in our culture what? You're either independent or you're dependent. And you don't want to be dependent, so you want to be independent. That's not what the scripture says. The scripture gives us this model in creation 
interdependence. Interesting enough, the New Testament talks about that a lot. When Paul talks about the body of Christ, what does he say? He gives the illustration of that we're all different parts of a physical human body. One person's the hand, one person's the ear. There's an interdependency there. We'll, bring, we'll, we'll go back to this in a second. Also, while we're in that same first chapter of Genesis, we see that God says, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Now, so we realize that we are made, everyone in this room, actually everyone in this town, whether they go to the church or not, whether they claim to Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior or not, everyone in this town was made in the image of God, every single one. What does it mean to be made in the image of God? It means a lot of different things. But the thing I want to suggest to you this morning, one thing at least it means is that we were made to be relational creatures. How can I say that? Think about this. God, the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, have been in perfect relationship from the beginning of time. Through eternity, there's been perfect love, perfect harmony, perfect unity within the Trinity. God is relational so that when we are made in his image, we too are relational. We are to have a relationship with him, a relationship with one another, a relationship with, with, with the creation, a relationship, a right relationship with ourselves. We were made to live out our lives in this relationship. Um, Professor Daryl Johnson writes this in his book, Experiencing the Trinity, he says this, At the center of the universe is a relationship. This is the most fundamental truth I know. At the center of the universe is a community. It is out of that relationship that you and I were created and redeemed. And it was for that relationship that you and I were created and redeemed. So, with that kind of background, let's go back to this idea of stewardship. Then what is stewardship? I would argue that simply stewardship is maximizing God's blessing for his glory. And I would add to that, not only for his glory, but for the benefit of, of all people. And for the extension of his kingdom in this place and this time. So that's what stewardship is. Now let's, let's flesh this out a little bit more. So if you think about, once again, the creation story, we see God making something out of nothing. Now, unfortunately, you and I can't do that. It'd be a good trick if we can, but that is God's domain. But God expects us to make something out of something. Uh, J.R.R. Tolkien, the author of The Lord of the Rings, called us sub-creators, that we're to take what God has given us and do something with it. You see, it's interesting. The Garden of Eden before the fall was perfect, but it wasn't finished. I would suggest to you that if Adam and Eve had not sinned, they would not have stayed in the garden forever. They would have moved out into the rest of the earth. Now, you say, Hugh, how can you say that? That's kind of presumptuous, right? No. Let me read you something out of the book of Genesis, the first chapter. This is literally where God comes to Adam and Eve and gives them their job description. This is on the sixth day before the end of the sixth day. God comes to Adam and Eve, Genesis 1, says this. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Fill the earth with what? With his images. And then subdue the earth. And we'll talk a second about what that means. So I would suggest that if Adam and Eve had not fallen, they would have moved out of the garden into the rest of the earth, filled it with his images, and would have subdued the earth and built incredible things. You see, stewardship implies an expectation of human achievement. The Hebrew word translated subdue in verse 28 is literally the Hebrew word kabosh, means to make the earth useful for human beings' benefit and enjoyment. So when they were told to go out and subdue the earth, they were to go out and build things, create things, create culture, build buildings, build civilizations. That's what this cultural mandate 
which is what's often uh, the name often referred to on Genesis one twenty eight, is all about. It's to create culture. Now, so we see that God's purpose with man was for him to go out and bring about flourishing within God's creation. Because God's original intent before the fall was for his creation to flourish. And what I would argue is the more it flourishes, the more God's glorified. So part of stewardship is understanding the principles that we're supposed to operate under as good stewards so that we can go out and create more flourishing because the more flourishing we're able to create within our spheres of influence, no matter how small that might be, the more flourishing, the more God's glorified. So it's all tied together. And this is very important. And this is really kind of the why your work is important to God. God put you here, gave you talents and abilities to go out and use them to bring about flourishing within your sphere of influence. And I would argue, if I had time, there's an incredible, a lot written throughout the Old Testament, particularly, and even the New Testament, about this idea of flourishing. The word shalom in the Old Testament, the word we typically translate as peace, is about flourishing. It literally means the way things were supposed to be. Now, when I talk about flourishing, I'm talking about biblical flourishing. Flourishing is a very popular word these days, right? A lot of people are talking about flourishing, this and that and the other. We have to be very careful because there's a secular version of flourishing and there's a biblical version of flourishing, and they're very different. In fact, I think one of the best illustrations of the difference we find in the book of Genesis, actually in Genesis 11. There's a group of people that decide to build a tower. This is what it says about them in Genesis 11, um, verse 11. It says, Come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we might make a name for ourselves. That is what I call cultural flourishing. That's selfish flourishing. That's flourishing that you're doing to make a name for yourself. Biblical flourishing on the hand does what? doesn't make a name for myself, but it glorifies God. Serves the common good and furthers his kingdom. That's the kind of flourishing that God has called each one of us to do. That's what Genesis 1.28 is about. And see, we who've been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb stand in the same place of Adam and Eve. We understand who God is, we've been equipped and empowered by his Holy Spirit working in us to go and do what God asked Adam and Eve to do, to fill the earth with images. It's easy now. We've got two ways to do it, right? We can birth kids and raise them up as Christians, and we can go convert people. So we got twice the, twice the, the, the bite of the apple, so to speak, right, as, as Adam and Eve did. We got twice the, the, the power to do that. And then this idea of subdue the earth is still part of what we've been called to do. You see, this idea of flourishing and stewardship is tied at the hip. You can't do one without doing the other. And the interesting thing is you go back and think about this idea of created in God's image, that we're relational. You cannot do stewardship by yourself. Stewardship can only be done in community. You can't flourish by yourself. Flourishing can only be done in community. Why? Because that's the way God made us. You see, it's interesting. We're all made in the image of God, so we're all alike in that respect, right? But there's kind of a paradox. We're all very different. Look in this room. There's so many different talents here. There's so many different aptitudes. There's so many different skills. God has given us all so many different gifts, why did he do that? Why did he make us all so different? He could have made us all exactly alike. Because if he'd made us all exactly alike, what would have happened? We wouldn't have needed one another. See, if Adam and Eve had been exactly alike, and this happened before the fall, if Adam and Eve had been exactly alike, they wouldn't have needed one another. But they weren't. Economists call this comparative advantage. Adam and Eve had comparative advantage over one another. Adam had things Eve couldn't do. Eve had things Adam couldn't do. And only when they came together and worked together could they really bring about the flourishing that God wanted to happen. The same thing is true about you and I. This is why we come together as the body of Christ in the church. Because 
God wants us to bring flourishing to this community, not only through the work we do in our jobs and our family, and our community, but also the work we do in this church or whatever church you go to. And it's only when we come together with all of our different gifts do we use them in effect a way to bring about flourishing. This is true with everything that we do. So flourishing and, and stewardship are very tied together. The better stewards we become, the, the more flourishing is produced. My, um, I have a, um, a woman that works for me who's a PhD in, in economics, Ann Bradley. Ann says, remember the movie Castaway with Tom Hanks? You know, he's shipwrecked on this beautiful island. There's plenty of food. There's plenty of water. I mean, this is the kind of place you and I would like to go for a vacation, especially in the middle of winter, right? But let me ask you something. Did he flourish? No. Why? Because he was by himself. Any of us, if we were dropped on that desert island, we wouldn't flourish either because we weren't made to live like that. We were made to live in community. This is something the culture is trying to to cheat us out of. When it talks about how we have to be independent, have to stand on our own, that's not the way God made the world. Don't believe that. As my friend Steve Brown says, that smells of smoke is from the pit. We were made to live in relationship with one another. Now, let me give you one more piece of this whole puzzle. At the Institute, we often talk about this larger biblical meta-narrative we call the four-chapter gospel. This is a way of looking at all of creation, the whole redemptive story in this four-chapter framework. The first chapter is creation. It explains to us the way things were. The second chapter is the fall. That explains the way things are. The third chapter, the one we live in on a day-to-day basis, is redemption. That explains the way things could be. And the last chapter is the chapter of restoration. And that explains the way things will be. And when we see this four-chapter gospel in its entirety, we begin to see where our story fits into God's story, to his story, right? Now, here's the problem. For 1,900 years, the church has talked about the redemptive story in the Bible in, in, this, in, this four, in these four chapters. But in the last 100 years, for a number of different reasons, the church has truncated those four chapters just to two chapters. All we talk about is the fall and redemption. We leave out the first chapter of creation. We leave out the second, excuse me, the fourth chapter of restoration. And the result of that truncation, right, is we've made the gospel all about us. That Jesus came, died for my sins. You know, I get saved. I've got my bus ticket to heaven. Doesn't really matter what I do here in the here and now. I'm just waiting for the bus to come. That's it. Listen, the Bible paints a very, very different story. And the problem is, when we take off that first chapter, all these things we read about in, in, in those first two chapters of Genesis today go away. We don't know why we were created. And when we take off the last chapter, we don't know what we were created for. We don't realize this that we will live in a physical place, a place without sin, which will be very different than this, but it's still a physical place, a new heaven and a new earth. And we will live with Christ there forever. So if we don't know why we were made, what we were called to do, and we don't know where we're going, it's no wonder the church has gotten in such a mess. Dallas Willard, the late Dallas Willard, just passed away a couple years ago, wrote about this two-chapter gospel. He says, we've, com- we've changed the gospel of Jesus Christ into the gospel of sin management. That's all it's about. Well, the reality is the gospel is about the creation and the restoration of all things. That's what Jesus came back. Jesus didn't come back just to die to take care of your sins. Jesus came back and died on the cross to restore the entire cosmos that's been ravaged by sin. This is why Paul can say that the whole universe, what, groans in anticipation for Christ to come and finish what he started the first time he was here. Now, the great book on poverty, if you want to read a good book, When Helping Hurts, written by uh, Brian Thickard. And what he says in that book is that we were created to live in four separate, unique relationships. This is part of this image of God thing we were talking about. 
and that what happens in the fall, all four of those relations are broken. The relationship with the Creator is broken in the fall. The relationship with ourselves, and he says you can read this in, in Genesis 3. You can read where this happens. Our relationship with ourselves is broken. The relationship with one another is broken. And finally, the relationship with the creation is broken. And when man, you know, falls, he falls hard and far. And then these four broken relationships really explain a lot about the world today. But fortunately, Jesus Christ comes and does what? He redeems his people, restoring those four relationships so that we might live and do what he's called us to do. And it's the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ that calls us back to our original calling to fill the earth with his images, to subdue the earth. That's not possible until you've been redeemed. So the gospel of redemption, the gospel of Christ, is drawing us back to fulfill this original calling that man had from the very beginning. Now, let me sum this up with one, with one last story. We believe that Jesus healed the blind man, right? Nod your head. I, you know, we believe that, right? I'm, I'm a good Presbyterian. You don't have to say amen. All you got to do is nod your head. I'm good with that. See, they don't call us the frozen chosen for nothing. I know we got some non-Presbyterians here. You, you understand we're very sedate here, right? So we believe Jesus healed the blind man, right? We believe that Jesus, when he was on the face of the earth, fed the 5,000, right? Now, let me ask you something. Did Jesus heal everyone that was sick on the face of the earth when he was here? Or did he heal everyone in Israel when he was here? No. Did he feed everyone that was hungry in Israel? No. Could he have? Of course he could have. He's the son of God. He could have done anything he wanted to. Then the real question you should ask yourself is why didn't he? Right? Now, I have a theologian, Ph.D. theologian that works for me, and he would answer that question by telling you what Jesus was demonstrating his power and authority as the Son of God on the face of the earth, and all that's absolutely true. But I think there's another reason that's applicable to what we've been talking about tonight, and that's simply this. When Jesus healed the blind man, let me ask you, what what chapter of the four-chapter gospel was Jesus in? Same one we're in, the chapter of redemption, right? What did I say the chapter of redemption was about? This is kind of a test, right? The chapter of redemption was about showing people the way things could be. So when Jesus heals the blind man, he's showing them there could be a time when no one's blind. When he feeds the 5,000, he's showing them there could be a time when no one's hungry. And we as his disciples are due likewise. So when we go out in the work world tomorrow and do whatever it is we do and bring about flourishing to glorify God, what are we doing? We're giving people a glimpse of the way things could be. No matter how insignificant it might seem to you what you do tomorrow, it has intrinsic value to God and in some way adds to what God is doing in the world to bring about flourishing for his creation. And the more we can do that, the better we get at that, the more we glorify God. Now, it's interesting. If you look back at the history, just, just look back at the history of Western civilization. And, and forget about the last hundred years, because I already said we've screwed up the last hundred years. But if you look back at Western civilization, almost every good thing that has been done during that whole period, with almost without exception, whether it's the development of hospitals, the development of universities, of, of education, the uh, uh, abolishment of slavery, Women's rights. I mean, you make a list. Almost everything good done in Western civilization, short of the last hundred years, was done by Christians living out the calling in their vocation to bring about flourishing, which served their neighbors and glorified God. One of the problems is the church has gotten away from that. The church used to be known for all the good things they did and the positive influence they were, right? You go back to the, to, the, to the third century, the great plagues came in Rome and everyone left the city except who? The Christians who stayed and cared for the people that were dying and sick. Let me ask you something. Think about what you do at work or at school or whatever you do. If you weren't there... What would people say? Would they say anything? Would they say good riddance? 
would they say, man, I like that Hugh Welch. He was crazy. He was one of those crazy Christians. But this place is not as good because he's not here. Let me ask you about your church. If your church wasn't here, would people say, you know, that church was full of crazy Christians, but the community is not the same. It's not as good as it used to be. I had a friend of mine came to me the other day and said, Hugh, what we need to do, we need to get 20% of the population of the United States converted, and then we can really be salt and light, and we can really change things. I said, no, that's not true. There's a, there's a science called minority influence. It's in the social science realm. There's been a lot of research done on how small can the minority be and still have an influence, a significant influence on the majority. What would you guess? 10%? I mean, you know, my friend thought it was 20%. 5%? 3%? 1%? But there's one key criteria. They have to be seen by the larger group as being a positive influence on the community. Here's the problem with the church today. And we have to be honest about this. We have to own up to it. What are we known for as the body of Christ today? We're known for what we're against, not what we're for. For 1,900 years, that's not the way it was in the church. We weren't perfect even back then. But at least we were seen as a positive influence in society. If we want to be salt and light, if we want to have the influence that God wants us to have, if we want to be the stewards that when they, we meet our maker face to face, that he says to us, well done, my good and faithful servants. If that's what we want, we've got to find ways to turn the tide. We've got to find ways that when we go out and interact with people who are non-believers, they walk away saying, that guy, you know, he's a crazy Christian, but he's honest. I can count on him if I need him, you know. I can get his business to come in and do work for us. He won't cheat us. You make a list. If we can do that, I'm telling you, in a generation, we can, we can impact Fort Worth. Maybe less than a generation. We can impact the state of Texas. We, I dare say it, we can have a tremendous impact on this country. We did it once before, and we can do it again. But we have to get serious about this thing called stewardship and understanding that God has given us talents and gifts and opportunities to make a difference, and we can't let those slip through our fingers. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number, filling the earth with my images and subduing it so that all of my creation might flourish. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ. We realize none of this discussion would be possible without him. That it's his gospel, that it's his redemptive work in each one of our lives makes it even possible to hear this message. To understand the truth of your word and how it applies to our lives every day, even tomorrow. Father, we would be bold enough to ask you for the courage of our convictions. That indeed we would go out in the world, even tomorrow. And work differently. Work with a different objective. So that we might bring flourishing to our communities. And bring great glory to you. Father, we acknowledge this is not going to be easy. And we would ask you that you would give us the power and the knowledge. The patience to work with people who who are difficult to work with. And the ability to be the people that you've called us to be. Father, we would pray that your gospel would take us back to our original calling. And that we would truly see that you've called us to fill the earth with your images. And make it a better place for everyone, including our neighbors. We pray this prayer in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Thank you. Do you, uh, do you want to do some questions? I don't know time-wise. I didn't. Okay.
Yeah. Does anybody have any questions about any of this or anything about faith and work? Or Did I put everybody to sleep? <laughs> wake up, wake up. I've got a question. Shoot. <clears throat> yep. Yeah, um, in my book, I've got a whole chapter of that because that's one of the things as I started kind of struggling through this faith and work stuff. And I'll tell you a little of my story. Um, 20 years ago, I was down in Florida running a computer company and really started to struggle about this whole thing. Why didn't God care about my work? I saw myself as a business person, as really a second-class citizen in, in, in the kingdom. I felt like the people were on the cutting edge were pastors and missionaries. I felt they were the guys doing something important. And I was kind of in the, in the backwater, you know, kind of supporting them. That was it. Um, if you'd asked me back in those days, what do you do that's important to God? I always said, I'm an elder at my church. I teach adult Sunday school. I'm on a couple of nonprofit boards. Never would have said running computer companies. But the more I thought about it, the more I struggled with that, I really started thinking, you know, that can't be right. And I talked to some people, and they gave me un, you know, really not good answers. And so one of them was a, was a guy who was a professor at a seminary. He said, you need to come take some classes at a seminary. I thought, that's the last thing I really want to do. But in God's grace, I started doing that, literally because the seminary was across the street from my office, so I really had no excuse. Started going over that night, and I really started learning some of the stuff about church history and, and you know, uh, this whole faith and work stuff. Martin Luther, um, one of his most famous quotes was, the work of the milkmaid is just as important to God as the work of the priest. And that was heresy in his day. It's almost heresy in some churches today. And uh, so the more I read, the more I began to realize there were some pieces that I had to understand to, to make sense of this whole faith and work stuff. And that's what the book's kind of about. But then after I started making sense of it, I thought, okay, if all this is true, how can we've gotten so far off track, right? Which is what your question is. And it's, it's a complicated answer. And just in a couple of words, a number of things happened. It's kind of a perfect storm of kind of bad things, right, that happened. Uh, at the end of the 1800s, beginning of the early part of the 1900s, uh, that really kind of got us off track. And it really gets back to its things that, that really truncated the fourth chapter gospel down to two. There's something called the Second Great Awakening. Um, pastors like an evangelist like Billy Sunday, uh, Charles Finney, people like that, huge revival movement, which was good. But the re- movement was so big and so broad and so wide, no one was discipled. And so what happened, it was all about, it turned into all about not making disciples, which is just have to go back. Even today, people misunderstand the Great Commission. The Great Commission is about, all, about making what? Converts, right? No. It's about making disciples. Well, they lost that view, and it all became about getting people converted. So that's where this kind of bus ticket to heaven mentality begins. And, and, and it's, that's... It's unfair to say that was all that was happening. There was a lot of different things. The church was going liberal. The, um, um, there were a number of movements in Europe, intellectual movements that were moving into the church, uh, the Enlightenment, other things like that. So there was a lot of different things going on. But the net result is the church that was left after all the kind of, you know, the smoke cleared, is a church that really had truncated the four-chapter gospel to two chapters. And we see the results of 100 years of that. And, and really, there was, there was kind of a sentinel moment um, in, the, in, the, in the 1920s, uh, something called the Scopes Monkey Trial. It's fascinating to go back and read the history, but the Scopes Monkey Trial was such a powerful event, watershed event. After that event, basically the church in unison in the United States walks away from the public square and says, they don't really say this, but kind of said this, we're just going to hunker down until Jesus comes. We don't care what happens. It's all going to burn up anyway. Who cares, right? Which is, which is, you know, which is not, which is not what the Scripture teaches. But it kind of got worked into the church, and a lot of it's still there. You know, this idea of the bus ticket to heaven, and people don't realize that that they're going to live with resurrection bodies. I mean, that's a shock to some people when you tell them you're not going to spend eternity in heaven. They say, "What?" I mean, try that with some of your Christian friends that don't go to your church. They will be very surprised. But, but once again, take them back to the, the, the passage that I opened with. Um, and let me read you one other quick quote that I did not read. So if you go back to this, um, if you go back to this idea of, um, of Corinthians, 
right? So this is that chapter of Corinthians I opened up with this whole idea that um, you'd think he would end this thing with, you know, uh, since the resurrection is so good and our resurrection is so powerful, why don't we wait? He doesn't. He says, you know, in stasis, your work in the present has power. It's important. Here's what one author writes about that passage. He says, everything, because everything you do in the present, in the power of the Spirit, and in union with Christ, everything that flows out of our love, hope, and grace, and goodness somehow will be part of God's eventual kingdom. That is the message of the resurrection. The resurrection is your new body in which you will be gloriously, truly, wonderfully you. The resurrection means everything you've done in the present through your body, works of justice and mercy, love and hope, somehow in ways we don't understand will be part of that future kingdom. That's a powerful statement. What you do in the present matters far more than you could possibly imagine. Even the mundane things that you think don't have any importance are important to God. Once you get this, once you begin to realize this, you look at everything differently. And, and um, I don't have any of my books with me. I'll give you one. But if, if you'll let me know, I'll send you one. you read that chapter because it goes into more detail. Other questions? Good question, though. Same one I had. Yes, sir. That's right. That's right. And far too often people think that means good work in the church. Doesn't say that, though, but that's kind of the way we read it. What? <laughs> we have to talk later. <laughs> Other questions or comments? Yes, sir. Between, yeah, I would say, in fact, uh, there are people who say that basically the Great Commission is just a restatement of the cultural mandate in light of Jesus' death, life, and resurrection. When Jesus says, you know, all power and authority has been given to me, you know, so he sends them out with authority, and then he tells them to go make disciples. Um, The parallels are very staggering there. One of the professors that I had a number of years ago put it this way. Paul talks about Jesus as the second Adam. We've read that, right? And so if you think about the first Adam was given this mission of the cultural mandate and he failed at it. Jesus, the second Adam, comes and does everything that Adam was supposed to do, but is successful. So Jesus comes and fulfills the cultural mandate. Now, here's the interesting thing. God gives Adam a helper to help him fulfill the cultural mandate. Who? His wife Eve. Likewise, God has given the second Adam, Jesus Christ, a bride as the church to help fulfill the cultural mandate. So that's another interesting kind of parallel if you want to look at it that way. Um, I, I know where you're going with this because it does seem like they're different. But um, I would, I've been, as much as I've studied, I've become fairly convinced that John Frame, who was one of my professors at seminary, basically talks about that literally the cultural mandate is being restated. It's restated a number of times through Scripture. It's not the first time it's restated. It's restated by God to Noah. It's restated again by the prophet Jeremiah to the exiles in Babylon. He tells them, don't. He says, well, he does say don't. He says, says, "Um, give your your husbands, excuse me, give your... um, sons and daughters in marriage, so that they'll have families, so that they will continue to prosper. In other words, he's telling them, continue to, to remember the cultural mandate. Continue to fill the earth with my images. Then he tells them something very interesting. He says, and work for the peace and the prosperity of the city that I've taken you into exile. Because if it flourishes, you too will flourish. I mean, literally what it says. It, says, it literally says it, it will have shalom. If it has shalom, you will have shalom. But what he's saying to them is, let me show you what subduing the earth looks like when you're not in charge. And, and, and therefore, I think it's very powerful to us as Christians today, because that's where we are. So what, they, what the prophet's literally telling them is, 
This idea of subduing the earth when you're not in charge looks like reweaving shalom, going out and bringing about flourishing in the areas that God's given you to do that. And the perfect example of the person that does that is Daniel. Daniel goes out and works for the people that destroyed his civilization and, and helped them flourish. Now, here's that's an interesting thing about Daniel and the, and the guys that were with him, right? Shadrach, Meshach, and Bingo, the guys that hung out with Daniel. We know them only by their uh, uh, Babylonian names. But they had to learn when they go out into the world and work for the flourishing of a, an ungodly civilization, which I think we do the same thing today. I mean, maybe there's still some, some, some Christ-haunted remnants here in Dallas. There are none in Washington. I want you to know that. It is an alien place to the gospel, okay? Um, but they went out, fulfilled what God had called them to do, work for the peace and prosperity of the, of, of the, of the city that they've been called to, yet they still knew where to draw the red lines. We hear a lot of talk in Washington about red lines. They only talk about them. They don't do anything, right? But Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego goes, this is a red line. We're not going to bow down before the golden idol, no matter what you do to us. That's the line we're not going to cross, right? Daniel says we're not going to eat the, we just want to eat vegetables. We're not going to eat the food. I never quite understood what that meant. But for Daniel, for whatever reason, that was a red line, and he wasn't going to cross it. Later, he, he draws another red line, and because of it, they throw him in the lines then. That's one of the things that's important for us to understand is we go out into an ungodly world and work for biblical flourishing. We've got to understand where in our own private lives and our work lives we draw those red lines. Another question, yes? Computer companies. Oh, yeah. A lot different, a lot different. I mean, I would have seen the importance of what I did where I didn't see that. And I think that would have changed my attitude about, uh, about the whole thing. Um, it's interesting because after I finished this little stint, I, was, I ran that seminary for seven years. And after I got done, I begged with God to let me go back in the business world. And instead, he made me start a nonprofit. So uh, I don't know. I'm still, <laughs> I don't know what that means exactly. But uh, yeah, I think there's two or three things. I would have seen the bigger picture. I would have seen that what I was doing is important. And I think that would have been much more fulfilling. One of the problems with work back then for me, I had a sense that what I was doing was just kind of putting a roof over the head, feeding my kids, sending my kids to college. I mean, you know, and I was thankful for the job, and I liked it, and I saw it kind of some way as a calling. But I didn't connect this idea about the inherent value of work. I mean, I just didn't see that as important. And I still struggle with that today. There are things I hate to do at work. And I'm telling you, you can have the best job in the world, but we live in a fallen world, so work's going to be hard. Why? Because we work under the curse. There's no escaping of it until Jesus comes back and we go into the new heaven and earth. Here's something cool, though. When we get to the new heaven and earth, think about the best two minutes of work that you can remember. All of us have two minutes where everything went perfectly. We were on. Everything turned out exactly. You have two minutes, right? Every minute for eternity when we work in the new heaven will be better than those two minutes because we won't be under the curse. That two minutes, God is giving you a glimpse of the way things could be and the way things will be in the new heaven and earth. That's exciting. And when you see your work in that kind of framework, it just changes everything, changes everything. I mean, as Chris, where's Chris? As Chris talked about earlier, you know, um, yeah, good question, good question. Other questions? Yes, sir. I'd like to piggyback on, on that question sure. a little bit more because I can see how that affects you as the business person. Yep. How do yep. you think being a steward, how that would have influenced your work in your day-to-day engaging with others, your yep. employees? Yeah, yeah. I think it even has more effect there than, than the big picture, right? Because you begin to realize in dealing with these people, and, and this is true anytime you deal with anybody, no matter what, you know, you're an example, right? Um, this, this is a terrible illustration, but I'll tell it to you anyway. Um, 
This week, I had all sorts of problems. My cell phone died. Well, it didn't really die. It worked, and it wouldn't work, and it worked. And I was trying to get all this stuff done. You know how frustrated you get. So then I finally got through to you know, my carrier. And, of course, after going through a maze of things, and I'd get to a person, then it would die. And I had to come back. And so finally when I got somebody. I was so frustrated. And then they did some tests. They said, well, your phone's bad. You're going to have to take it in. It needs a new chip or whatever. So by now, I am just, you know, I'm about to lose it, right? So my wife's riding with me to the, to the she goes, remember, don't go in there and lose your witness. <laughs> Which made me even madder, right? <laughs> but I, I think there's a real truth to that. My wife's a saint that she's put up with me all these years as proof to that. Uh, but I think there's a, there's a, we should act differently, right? We, we, sh- we should not let these things get us so wrapped up because we should see things in a bigger perspective. And uh, after I got over mad, her telling me that, you know, I, I, I did pretty good. But uh, um, I think dealing with people, because, see, you've got to realize you're going to deal with people who aren't Christians that don't get it. And they're not going to cut you any slack, right? But that's what you need. That's what we need to be honest and, and sincere in front of people. Um, I'm telling you, this whole idea of changing the way people look at us as Christians is absolutely critical. And it's because what's happened is we as Christians have gone to work and worked just like everybody else. And we've left our faith on Sunday and not carried it over to Monday. And that should change everything. Uh, Oz Guinness in his book says that, that you know, when we become Christians, it should just radically change everything we do. It should equip us with a, with a dynamism and a devotion that goes beyond anything we can possibly imagine. And I think that's what we've got to bring to work. I mean, we have it when we go to church on Sunday, when we worship and we pray and, you know, we've got to, we've got to somehow find a way to bring that to work because it's just as important. It's probably more important. Pastors, hold your head. It's probably more important on, uh, I don't want them to hear this, it's probably more important on Monday than it is on Sunday. Because that's when we are, that's when the world is looking at us and they're looking at us under a magnifying glass. And they can continue to do that. And they should. They should. We sh- they shouldn't cut us any slack. Right? Yes, sir. Yeah. That's right. That's exactly right. And, and we, our culture is the best at compartmentalizing probably of anyone ever. We're just so good at it. And it's, and it's once again, it's not godly. You know, we should be the same no matter what, no matter who we're around. Another question. We've got time for a couple more. Yes, sir. You, you mostly focus on an individual. Yes. Yep. We're in, in positions of leadership, steering, yep. vision of, of an organization. Yep. How do you see that playing out? How, how well, I mean, it, it, it means that you have a much larger sphere of influence, right? So you're much more responsible. I mean, you know, those who have been given much are going to be held accountable, and, and you are going to be accountable. And it's interesting because one of my favorite parables is the parable of talents, right? And if you look at the parable of talent, one guy was given one talent, one was given two talents, one was given five talents. Now, first of all, you need to understand, you know what a talent's worth in today's dollars? About a million dollars. So the guy was given one talent. I always felt sorry for that guy growing up in Sunday school. I thought, you know, the poor guy, he had one crummy little talent, and I envisioned one little coin. What did the, what did the owner expect, you know? No, the guy got a million dollars and went and buried it in his backyard. No wonder the master was upset with him, right? So, but the, but the key to that understanding that um, parable is simply this. One was given one, one was given two, one was given five. Why? It says, each according to his own ability. Now, you couldn't do that today. Why? Yeah, it would be unfair, right? It would be, uh, you know, you'd get in trouble, right? We'd have to give everybody three and a half talents, right? But why did the master do that? Because he knew that some had more ability than others. Now, here's the interesting thing. So forget the guy with one because he messes up, really. 
And really, every sermon I've ever heard preached is about the guy that messed up. We should be listening to the guys that did well because they're the ones we want to model, not the guy that messed up, right? We want, to do, we want to be talking about the guy that took $5 million and made it into $10 million. See, we don't think of the parable of talents as a story of massive wealth creation, but that's what it is. Now, to take $5 million and turn it into $10 million would be a huge feat even in our economy today. But back then, that guy was like a Steve Jobs. I mean, he was like a Bill Gates. I mean, he was like Wonder Boy, right, to do that. There aren't many people like that. You know, you might be one. And if God gives you that kind of influence, you know, you're going to have to really work hard. Now, here's the interesting thing about this story, right? And I'll tell you, it's interesting. I know a guy that uh, at one time thought, you know, God's gifted me to be a Bible teacher. I'm going to, be a big, I'm going to go all over places and speak to great crowds and all stuff like that. And this guy realized one day when he, you know, at, at some point in his career, he began to realize, you know, I'm not speaking to really big crowds. <laughs> and maybe this whole thing is piping. But see, he'd been told one of the great lies that our culture has told us, that you can be the best in the world. See, two great lies. You can do anything that you want to do, and you can be the best in the world. Both of those aren't true. Right? I hate to pop some people's bubble in here, but they're both lies. From the pit, smells like smoke, forget it. Right? <clears throat> but this guy, at one point, is studying this parable of talents, and it dawns on him that the Tim Kellers of the world and the you know, people like that, they're five-talent guys, and he's a two-talent guy, and he's never going to be one of those guys. Now, that should have been the worst day of his life, Right? Right? That should have been the worst day of his life. But it wasn't because he got the story of the parable of talent. Here's the piece we miss in that story. What is the reward for the two-talent guy? Do you remember? The master says, well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of the master. What was the reward for the five-talent guy? Well done, my same exact thing. Wait a minute. That's not fair. This guy produced more than twice as much. He gets the same reward. What's up with that? Right? Because it's not about how much you produce. It's about how hard you work. How hard did the two-talent guy have to work to make two more talents? He had to work 100%. Because remember, he's a two-talent guy. He had to do the best that he could possibly do. The five-talent guy, well, how hard did he have to work to make five more talents? He had to give it his all. He had to do That's what God measures. What we do with what he's given us. So if you've been given more, more is going to be held, you're going to be held accountable for what God's given you. And, and people don't like to hear that because they think, oh, I've got my free bus ticket to heaven. I got a free pass. It doesn't really matter what I do. It's not what the story. Now, keep in mind, I'm not talking about works righteousness or earning your way to heaven. I'm not talking about any of that. I'm talking about God's blessing for doing what he's asked us to do in the here and now. The parable of talent is one of the most important things, I think, for us in business because it explains to us what the biblical secret of success is. And the biblical secret of success is taking the gifts God's given you, doing what he's called you to do at 100%, no less. And it gets back to the question you asked earlier, what would I have done different? I'd have, I'd have worked harder. Because there were times I slacked, even as the business owner, at times I coasted because the people I was working for, I knew I could get away with it because I didn't, I didn't see how this connected. And I've had to ask God to forgive me for that. And so now, and, and what I'm doing now, I hit it every time I can, as hard as I can. And do I make mistakes? Yeah, I screw up. But, I, I, you know, we're all going to make mistakes. That's just the nature of the game. The, the thing that I want you to leave you with, and this will be the last thing, is this idea of going out and, and running the race as hard as you can. Um, I was telling some people earlier, just more confession time here, but uh, I used to laugh at people had had life verses. Do you know what a life verse is? Some people are nodding your heads. So a life verse is you know, one verse that you think kind of explains your whole life, and I would just, I thought that was silly until I realized I had one, and then I had to rethink the whole thing a little bit. But, the verse that God's given to me that really, and I, you know, I'm 62 years old, I can look back on a lot of history, and I see the threads that run through my life, and I see where this, this is who God made me to be. It's Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. 
Therefore, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us cast aside the sin that so easily entangles us and let us run with perseverance the race that God set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus Christ, the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith. And I I realize, you know, this calling on my life has been to help people, some Christians, some not, to be the best that they could be. To run the race of life as hard as it can. It's a fascinating verse to me because I struggled for years about the idea of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. It's right there in that verse. I've got, I'm responsible. I've got to get up every morning, lace up my shoes and go out and run as hard as I can. That's what I'm responsible to do. That's what, if you're a two-talent guy or a five-talent guy or a one-talent guy, that's what you've got to do. What does God do? He lays out the path that I'm going to run on. When I get up in the morning and start running, I don't know where I'm going to end up, and neither do you. But what you do do is you go out and you try to be as faithful as you can every day, do everything that he puts in front of you with all of your energy, all your strength, and for one reason, to glorify him at the end of the day. And if we can do that, when we stand face to face with the maker, he will tell us, Well done, my good and faithful servant. And that's what I want to hear. I don't know about you. Thank you. I appreciate it.